God's Word, Romans chapter 4, verse 18 through verse 21, which picks up in the middle of a sentence. So I'll begin in verse 16, though uh, the sermon text begins in verse 18. But for the sake of continuity, Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of whom, uh, of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be, and not being Weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old. In the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that he, uh, that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful again for your word, and we ask you especially that through the ministry of your spirit, you might enable your word to be open to us with greater clarity and even with greater power, not so much after a natural sense, but in the true spiritual sense of your word. It comes to us with much plain plainness, uh, not as the testimony of men with great eloquence, uh, but may the same be characterized of the preaching. With plainness, let you, O Holy Spirit, direct our hearts and our minds unto yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The focus of chapter 4 has been, as we've seen, the the testimony of the Old Testament saints, especially the testimony of the two men, David and Abraham. In many ways, it is similar to what we have in Hebrews chapter 11 in that sense, the testimony of the great saints. And And the primary question that Paul is asking with respect to those two men, and thus, by implication, all the Old Testament saints along with them, how were they saved? How did they come into the blessedness that David speaks of in Psalm 32, which he quotes in verses 7 and 8, in which he summarizes in verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. In other words, the man whom Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, the man who is justified by faith apart from works. That was the blessing which David found. That was the blessing which, which Abraham found. And that is how they and all the other saints were saved in the Old Testament. And so the answer has been, looking at what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 4, the answer has been twofold. From the divine viewpoint, he has been stressing the promise. They were saved by God's gracious promise and connected to that his actions. But from the human viewpoint, since it was the promise with which they had to deal, from the human viewpoint, they were saved by faith, not by works, but by faith. And here I am especially helped by something I'm generally not even willing to call attention to, but that is the section headings that you find in the Bible. I don't know what you have, but in the New King James, it says concerning verses 13 and following, which we are still considering the promise granted through faith which I think is a good way to describe these twin elements, the promise and faith, and the the relationship of the two. The promise, as we saw last time, did not come to Abraham, nor was it realized in the life of his children 
his spiritual seed through the law. It was not by the law that Abraham became the father of a multitude, nor is it by the law that we become his sons. The point that Paul is making, as the chapter heading says, or the section heading says, is that the promise given to Abraham was realized, or it came to pass by faith, and faith alone. Faith alone brings the promise to us, for the promise is pure grace, and only faith from the human side of things can deal with the promise. Thus, Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, it, it being the promise, it is of faith that it might be according to, to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, that is, Jews and Gentiles alike. Any man at all might be saved by this gospel if only he has faith. That was one of the leading assertions of Romans. It is something he continues to stress. But having stated that, the promise is realized not through, uh, not through the law or not through works, but through the promise, by faith, Paul then takes a closer look at the faith of Abraham with respect to the promise, which is what we have in verses 18 through 21. He wants us to see, as I said earlier, uh, faith considered as a practical thing. He isn't just describing faith anymore. Now he's illustrating it in the life of this great Old Testament patriarch. And through him, he answers the question, what does it mean to believe the promise? And the value of this question is enormous, since our justification is attached solely to this question, namely, do we have faith? And likewise, whether we are Abraham's children. That is also a question which is settled by the question, do we have faith? And so everything uh, hangs and hinges on this single question. It would seem, namely, what is faith? Or perhaps, do we have faith? And no one, Paul is saying, and it would seem the writer of the Hebrews has the same conviction in Hebrews chapter 11. No one is better suited to illustrate this for us than Abraham, seeing that he was the one who was not only the father of all who have faith, but the man in Scripture in whom the principle itself is idealized. The principle being, the just shall live by faith. Well, how, how ought we to look at this passage? It really is... Again, Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. It is a sum, summation of the faith of Abraham. And it really is an amazing picture of faith. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is the most incredible statement in all of Scripture, even beyond what we have in Hebrews chapter 11, as to answering, again, what is the question, uh, excuse me, answering the question, what is faith? Or connected to that, do we have faith? And so we begin by asking the question simply, what is faith? And again, the answer to this question is found in Abraham's faith. What did it mean for him to believe? That was the question I would remind you we were considering again and again in Genesis chapters 12 through 22, the Abrahamic narrative. It is his faith that stands out most prominently. And we notice that even before we find Paul ever saying it. So what did it mean for Abraham to believe? And the answer, uh, very simply, is that faith for him consisted in his belief in the promise. But we can state the matter stronger still. We notice it from Genesis and we see Paul pinpointing what this belief in the promise consisted of, namely his certainty in the promise. His certainty in the promise. His assurance 
with respect to God and his word. Now that is the clear emphasis of the text here, that Abraham possessed certainty with regard to the promise. He didn't waver. He didn't become weak. He didn't worry over how improbable the thing was. He just believed. He considered not himself and his human weakness and the the age and the frailty both of himself and of his wife, but he looked to him who promised verse 21 and being fully convinced that he who had promised being, uh, excuse me, him being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. That is God. And it is this element of certainty that you will find in Calvin and the Reformers' discussions on faith. If you've ever read, for instance, and I think you should read, Calvin's chapter in the Institutes on Faith, it is one of the best Discussions on faith you will ever find. And the thing that Calvin emphasizes to the point, as I'll I'll come to in a moment, that he is even criticized by later Protestant scholars. The thing that he emphasizes about faith is its certainty. This is what he says. For just as faith can never be content with some fleeting and dubious belief, neither can it be with some dark and confused perception. It demands full and settled certainty. And it finds this certainty, Calvin says, in God's word alone, his word of promise. And it is with respect to the promise that Calvin speaks of faith as confidence or as conviction or being convinced. Even, he says, our full assurance found again, not in ourselves But in God's word of promise, it is our firm conviction, our full assurance that God's word is true. Of course, he says to balance out the discussion in teaching that faith must be certain and assured. We do not envisage envisage a certainty untouched by doubt. I like that very much. We do not envisage a certainty untouched by doubt. Nor a sense of security which is exempt from all worry. No, Calvin says, there will always in the life of faith be battle, there will always be struggle. And faith, he adds, will never be perfect in this life, not even in the best saints, not even in an Abraham. But he closes by saying, the battle always ends with faith triumphing. And the way faith triumphs, he means, is by it settling once again in a position of certainty with respect to God's word. It overcomes the doubts which assail it. By a settled certainty. Now I mention this for two reasons. One is simply that I want you to have a taste of Calvin. And and to realize that uh, this is something worth reading. This is a study on faith uh, which is incredible. But the other reason I mention it is because he and the reformers have sometimes been criticized on this point. Concerning their ideas about faith. The idea being that perhaps they went too far. Perhaps they did, in the end, make assurance the essence of faith, which our confession says at a later period in history was not the case. That assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. That, And actually, we'll read that quote a little later on in the sermon. But let me just ask you, based upon what we just read in Romans chapter 4, whether you find... Paul and Calvin in agreement, or if you find them at odds? Do we not find 
Paul stressing about Abraham's faith, the very things that Calvin is stressing, our settled conviction, our certainty, our full persuasion in the face of doubts, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of the, the, the sheer improbability with respect to the thing promised, that an old man could have a child. Do you not notice the very same thing being stressed? And I would add my voice to Calvin's and to Paul's and saying, it's my own definition of faith, which I've been using here for a while. Faith is my certainty that God's word is true. I am confronted with the word of God, the word of promise, and I believe it. I accept it as true. I am fully persuaded. In other words, and we'll see this later, I don't need God to prove it. I am fully satisfied with his word. That is what faith is. Faith is this act of trusting and believing with total certainty and confidence once confronted with God's word and then venturing out and venturing all upon the word of God. But this brings me to the next issue and that is what are the main characteristics of Abraham's faith? And we've already noticed that the main ingredient is certainty in his faith. But let us see what else is true of Abraham's faith. And the first uh, of these being that he was undaunted by the difficulties. That's what Paul seems to be emphasizing most in uh, these four verses. That for as staggering as this word of promise was, and for as improbable as it seemed, That this old man and this old woman together might bear a child. 100-year-old Abraham, 99-year-old Sarah. You see, it was staggering. It was improbable even to Abraham according to the flesh. Nevertheless, Paul says, it was no obstacle to his faith. His faith was undaunted by the difficulties. He was not weakened in the face of this, but he grew strong. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. Faith doesn't turn its back on the problems It surmounts them. It looks at them straight in the face and then rises above them. You see, that's what Paul is saying here. It wasn't that he ignored the weakness of the flesh. It wasn't that he ignored his age or the age of his wife. It's that he looked them in the face and he surmounted them. That's what it is to believe. And so Paul is speaking here, if I could put it another way, of the victorious nature of faith. And indeed, we get some sense of what John meant when he said that faith is our victory over the world. But this brings me to the next element, and that is the way that faith rests solely and totally in God. That is, in him who promised, which is again uh, the emphasis of verse 21. Being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He was resting solely and fully in God, in him who promised. On this point, Voss speaks of the personal element of faith, the dimension of friendship with God, which consists of trust and commitment. The simple fact is, and this is the sole explanation for Abraham's faith in the word, Abraham trusted God. He believed in God, and thus he accepted his word and true. And because this was true, he didn't need God to prove anything to him. He was content merely that God should speak. And that was enough for him. Such is the thought once more of verse 21. Being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able also to perform. 
His concern was that God should have the glory. And he knew that God was most glorified when he could be trusted by us. And this was the key to the religious consciousness that Abraham embodied so well. Namely, as one who walked by faith in a strange land, as we later see in Hebrews chapter 11. Though, which we know and we will see, he too had to learn that all of life is a constant battle and a test of faith. As Voss calls it, his whole uh, life was a school of faith. So it was something that Abraham had to learn. And yet the question which confronted him, both at the beginning of his religious journey at 86 years old and at the end at 100 years old, was simply, and it was the same question that faces us, what do we make of God's word? When it comes to us, can it be trusted? Is God trustworthy? Can God and his word be relied upon for all of life and even for eternal life? And are we able to trust it, though everything in this word, this world, I mean, seems to be against it, making the very thing promised to us seem to be the most improbable thing to occur? And so this brings me to another key element, and that is the supernatural character of the promise. It was not without reason that God promised to Abraham the impossible. It is impossible now, it was impossible then, that a man and a woman at 199 years old might bear a child. And yet that was precisely uh, what brings out most clearly both the supernatural character of the promise and the essence of faith which depends solely and fully upon the promise. That faith relies in the final analysis solely upon God's power. It does not rely upon the calculation of what is most likely to occur. In fact, it is able to reason in reverse, accepting that the thing is itself is unlikely and even from the human standpoint impossible nevertheless. It knows and we believe by faith that all things are possible with God. What Abraham believed, therefore, was not what Abraham could do. It was what God could do. And of this he was fully persuaded. God could do anything. Verse 21 again. Being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And so his persuasion, his conviction, his assurance arose. Not from a sense of what he thought was likely to occur or even possible. His faith lifted him far above that. And it transported him into the the sphere of the supernatural and of the heavenly. He began to consider the possibilities from the divine viewpoint. Is anything too hard for God? Obviously not. And realizing this, we see there really is no difficulty in believing. Oh yes, Paul says the whole thing was contrary to hope. And yet in hope he believed which does not mean he entertained wishful thinking, but rather that out of a full persuasion he looked forward to the great things God would do. Contrary to hope, in hope he believed. But at the same time, arriving at the next uh, point in, or, or the, next, uh, the, the next element or ingredient in faith, we see his attitude toward the promise and its fulfillment. And what we notice is that Abraham was content Solely to possess the promise. That was again enough for him. In his lifetime he did not need to see the promise brought to fulfillment. Faith deals with the promise itself. 
Gerhardus Voss calls this the spiritualized attitude toward the promise. And so I would, I would add uh, Voss to your reading list. Voss on faith, again dealing with this chapter, chapter 4, and it's about three pages. I can tell you where it is if you want to read it. That's one of the most amazing treatments on what he calls the ingredients of faith. Again, looking at Hebrews chapter 4. He speaks of the spiritualized attitude toward the promise. And what he means, as I've just been stressing, is that Abraham did not need to see the promise realized in his lifetime in order to believe. He did not say, I see, therefore I believe. He said, God has spoken, therefore I believe. And so Abraham, in many ways, again, we understand the parallels between his experience and ours. He was a pilgrim who was content solely to have God and God's word, never seeing the promise realized in his life. That was entirely enough for him. With respect to the seed, uh, the promised son, uh, it is true he was able to see it in some measure fulfilled, though even then it was only a partial fulfillment. He never was able to see in his life the coming of the Messiah, the promised seed. Though he looked forward to his day with gladness, as Jesus tells us. In that sense, he dealt solely with the promise. With respect to the land promised to him, he never saw it. He dwelt in it, but he never possessed it. He was content, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, to dwell in the land as a pilgrim and as a stranger, looking looking to a better country. He was able to spiritualize the promise. He was able by faith to see the true nature of what God was promising to him. He was able to see that God was promising something far greater than natural descendants or a physical land. He was promising to him a Messiah and a spiritual kingdom. In hope he realized the great thing in the end was the full possession of God himself. And by faith in the promise, that is what he already possessed. Altogether apart from the, uh, from the fulfillment. But let me uh, take the discussion in a different direction now and ask this question. Something which may perhaps have been troubling you all this time, and that is, what of Abraham's doubts? We've been looking at his certainty and his full persuasion, his assurance, as, as we've been calling it. But wait a second, we ask. What of his doubts? We know from the Abrahamic narrative, again, Genesis chapter 12 through 22, that Abraham's faith was perhaps not so, uh, not so ideal as portrayed here. Now, this was a question I had myself, but Paul offers an important clue as to, uh, as to the answer to this when he tells us that he's talking about old man Abraham. He refers to his age even, a hundred years old, which takes us to the very end of the Abrahamic narrative. Not when the promise first confronted him in Genesis 15 at 86 years old, but 14 years later, just before the promise was fulfilled in his life, at a hundred years old. And in one sense, the reason that Paul is highlighting this is in order to serve to highlight the dilemma, the improbability of the promise ever coming to fulfillment. The promise came to him initially at 86 years old, already old enough to make the thing seem impossible. But now, amazingly, contrary to hope, in hope, he still believed 14 years later that God would do what God had said. He hadn't given up hope. He was still believing. It was then at that old age that Paul says of him, verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, 
since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise or unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So at that old age, again, we find him still believing. Amazing. He hadn't lost hope in all that time. And that, in many ways, underscores and underlines the very point which is being made. That though faith is assailed by many things which makes uh, or which create doubt, nevertheless, it rises up in a full persuasion and assurance of God's word. But this reference to his age is also an important clue in answer to our question, what of his doubts? Which again, we know about as we read the, the Genesis narrative about Abraham. It is an important clue that what we are considering is an Abraham whose faith had weathered many storms, suffered many doubts, but now was matured and triumphing in this old believer. We are considering, again, old man Abraham. Abraham, in many ways, who had graduated the school of faith. And so we see in Abraham, faith at its best and in its most mature form. We see the faith of this old saint celebrated here, just as we find in Hebrews chapter 11. We see, as Paul plainly tells us, a faith that is strong, and we're considering faith when it was strong, that is, at the end of his life. And yet, at the same time, he seems to confess, if only by implication. And certainly, we see this in the life of Abraham, but also in our own lives, as we think of what it means to believe, that faith can sometimes be weak as well. In speaking of a strong faith, he seems to confess it is true. We know that faith can often also be weak. Faith isn't always as strong as it is portrayed here in the life of Abraham at a hundred years old. Sometimes it grows strong in the face of doubts, but sometimes it also grows weak as it is assailed by doubts, even as it was at times in the life of Abraham. And this is a point where I think the Westminster Confession does us a great service. And yes, I think, I, I think you should read that too. When it says in chapter 14 with respect to saving faith, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often and many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. This is a very similar statement to what we read Calvin saying. We do not envisage a certainty untouched by doubt, nor a sense of security which is exempt from all worry. But he says the battle always ends with faith triumphing. That is precisely what we read here. It is assailed. Faith is assailed. It is weakened from time to time. Nevertheless, it grows up. It gets the victory. It attains a full assurance. So faith, yes, may be weak or strong. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong. Strong faith is like Abraham's portrayed here. It attains a full assurance, a full and settled certainty with respect to God's word. But let us be fair. A weak faith often lacks this assurance. And yet, it still deserves to be called faith. And it's still something that saves. It's still something that justifies We find something similar in the chapter on assurance in our confession, chapter 18, where it makes this helpful distinction. It's a theological distinction between faith and assurance, clarifying the issues for us. Speaking of uh, believers in section one, 
It says, such as, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Certainly anyone who has faith may arrive at a full assurance like Abraham did. And, and beyond that, it says in section 2, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. Again, a settled certainty in God's word. And yet, it makes this distinction in chapter 3, or section 3. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet, he may, without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. Do you notice the balance of the confession? It's the same balance you find in Calvin. And this is such a wonderful statement. Of course, from a purely technical standpoint, faith and assurance are not the same thing. Oh yes, it is true, they say, a man might have faith yet still lack assurance. And thank God for this. For often we lack such assurance. And we fall short of uh, the portrayal of Abraham as we find in Romans chapter 4. Our faith is assailed, it is shaken, it wavers, it staggers at the promise, unlike Abraham. And yet, the promise of Scripture is sure. Still we are saved, for faith is not vanquished, not entirely. But do not understand the confession here, nor the biblical teaching. It says that faith, though it is assailed and though it is weakened in the face of difficulties, it isn't conquered, but it is weakened. It says that faith ought always to rise from the ashes and to reach higher. And that is what faith always does. That is its essential nature and its function in the heart of the believer. And so we should never be content with anything less as believers than a full assurance and a full and settled certainty as Abraham had. And how is it that faith arrives at this? Not in any other way than by believing like Abraham here, by considering not our weakness, nor our problems, nor our doubts, but God himself. That he who promises is able to perform the very things that he has promised. And that, so this brings me now to the final point, and that is the way that faith makes us strong. He did not waver, verse 20, at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. Old man Abraham, waiting all these years. He didn't grow weak, but was made strong. It's an interesting uh, point he's making, and it confronts us with a question I'm not sure I can answer. Is Paul saying that faith made him strong, was strengthened in faith, or that faith itself was made strong in the face of the difficulties? And I don't know the answer to that. But either way, I would say it amounts to the same thing. Instead of becoming weak, he became strong. He didn't doubt, but he believed. How? He considered the promise and the God who made the promise. He fixed his attention and his face on the, his faith on these he rose above the difficulties, not by a vain and unfounded confidence, but by making his faith and thus his life to depend solely upon God. And that is what you find the confession saying as well. 
What they're saying with respect to assurance for a believer is that the thing really isn't difficulty. That is, arriving from a standpoint of weakness to a standpoint of strength. For all who have any faith at all, uh, they seem to be saying it is but a short leap to assurance. It may and should be attained by every believer and really ought to be. None of us should be content with anything else or anything less than a faith like this. When doubt begins to creep in, you have to consider God at that very moment. You have to go to him in prayer. You have to study his word. You have to deal with the promise and he who promises. In other words, you have to become familiar with him. You have to be one who, uh, like Abraham, is a friend with God. The personal element must inject itself in. We are not dealing with a bare word. We are dealing with the word of God and thus God himself in his word. And so we're not talking about faith as though in a theory. God, let us always remember, is a person. And in the final analysis, it is the personal element of trust upon which faith is founded always. But if you know him, as Abraham did, And can say honestly that I am a friend of God. I am one who is well acquainted with his ways. I know what it is to commune with him in prayer. I have studied his ways. I have meditated upon them in scripture. God is one with whom I am well familiar. And I am one who is persuaded that he is one whose word can be trusted. Well then, all of these men and I together with them am saying that there really is no difficulty in believing for one who is like this. One who is ever dealing with the promise and the God of the promise. You will not waver in unbelief, but you will become strong. You will have assurance. But something beyond that will also be true of you. And this takes us beyond the concerns of the present text. And that is, as we'll see next time, you will be justified. Verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is, the faith of Abraham is what justified him. And it was the fact that he had a real faith. By faith he rested in the promise. He received and accepted. All of it is true. And so faith, Paul says, was credited to him as righteousness. Which is just a quotation of Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. But look at this, Paul says. The same will be true of you. If only you have a faith like his. Verses 23 through 25. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Do you notice that faith functions for us exactly in the same way? It deals with the same God, the God who promises. And the God who promises once again promises the most improbable and indeed the thing which seems impossible. That is how he demonstrates his power to save. And what he does is this, Paul says. And what he asks us to believe is that God sent his son into this world in fleshly form. And there he delivered him over for our sins to die upon the cursed and awful cross. But not only that, but on the third day he rose him up from the grave. That is the staggering, the improbable, the impossible word of promise that we are asked to believe. And in believing, God says, we will be justified just like that. 
Just the moment you believe it and accept it as true, your sins are washed away. Your persons are accounted as righteous solely and fully because of what God has done in his son. Is there anything more wonderful than the gospel? Paul is saying. This word of promise. And yet at the same time from the human viewpoint, which is to say the flesh. Is there anything which is more difficult to believe than this? That God really did this. And that solely by believing he has, we might be saved too, like Abraham. We sinners counted righteous because Christ's blood paid for our sins. And by his resurrection, justified. Yes, God really said this. And God really did it. And that is why he did it. That we might be saved and that we might be justified. Along with Abraham. That the righteousness of faith might be ours along with his. But the only question is, do you believe it? For the righteousness of faith, he says, is not imputed to all. But to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered up because of our offenses. And was raised because of our justification. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us now come to the table.